Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Mike Brown, author, nerd, and host of the Dark Poutine podcast. Join me and Morgan Knudsen, author, paranormal researcher, and host of the TV shows Paranormal 911 and Haunted Hospitals, as we take you on a journey for the curious about the unseen, the mysterious, and the incredible things happening in the world about us. Welcome to Supernatural Circumstances. Over our next couple of episodes, we'll be tackling the topic of perhaps the best known of all cryptids, most commonly called Bigfoot or Sasquatch. In British Columbia, just down the road from here in fact, is the town of Harrison, a longtime hotspot for Sasquatch sightings. It is the region from which one of the most famous of all Bigfoot researchers, John Green, hailed. A small museum in Kilby, B.C. has a collection of several items related to Green and his works, which include plaster casts of alleged Bigfoot tracks. It's worth a visit if you're in the area. I've been there. It's pretty cool. Both this week's guest and next week's guest take us from the Pacific Northwest into other regions that may be lesser known for their sightings of the creature. After Morgan's thoughts in this episode, we speak to Alexander Petikoff. Alexander is a documentary filmmaker, adventurer, and avid outdoorsman constantly searching for the unknown. Traveling across North America and the world, Alexander has looked into various cryptozoological creatures like Sasquatch, the Loch Ness Monster, the Lake Champlain Monster, mystery big cats, as well as other Fortean phenomena, and mysterious places like the Bridgewater Triangle, and he's done many documentaries on these topics and more. Alexander has chronicled over 50 Bigfoot sightings in his home state of New Hampshire. He is a small-town Monsters crew member and has searched far and wide for Sasquatch in the Bigfoot Beyond the Trail documentary series on YouTube. Anyway, here's Morgan. This month, Mike and I are exploring the uncharted territories of the legendary cryptid Sasquatch. When we think of Bigfoot, we think of the great mountains of the Sierras, the Rockies, the Appalachians, among so many other vast forest lands around the world where these forest giants have been reported to roam for centuries. Everyone in their own minds has a picture of what we call Bigfoot. And when we hold that picture in our minds, the backdrop of our vision has the picturesque or perhaps spooky backdrops of those wooded places we've heard about over and over again in stories all over the world. In the following two episodes, we're going to take you on a bit of a different journey, one you may or may not be expecting, a journey into vast winter prairies and landscapes of ice and rock up in the hidden corners of the world. We are also going to talk to people who dare to venture there, both in research and in person, those who dare to challenge the stereotype of what Bigfoot should be and what it could be. In this week's episode, we're going to journey to the far reaches of Alaska, to the Kenai Peninsula, and into the deep wild of a little-known place to where there is no road. Alaska, in its vast mountains and untouched wilderness, with its stunning landscapes, frozen lakes, and breathtaking wildlife, is a part of this world that humans have tried to conquer and yet still fail to do so. It is one part of the United States that although people occupy its lands, the land still lords over the humans who dare to call it home. This is one such story, which Alexandra Petrikov and Eli Watson ventured to document 
at a remote cabin in the Kenai Peninsula, where the owners claimed they were not alone. Experiencing rock throwing, bizarre yells and whoops, unnerving crying, hundreds of unexplained tracks and wood knocks, the owners of this particular cabin had no idea what they were in for when they bought this serene piece of property on the edge of the water. Little did they know they were far from alone and that they now shared the land with creatures that were once thought to simply be legend and fairy tales. Sometimes far off places that seem like simple fairy stories themselves come with characters that reflect that very magic they seem to possess in the land itself. In the brand new two-part documentary, Alaskan Coastal Sasquatch, Small Town Monsters documentarian Alexander Petrikov joins myself and Mike in detailing a story he won't soon forget. Some stories you simply aren't meant to read and put back on the shelf. And for Alex, this is one of them. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. First of all, thank you so much for being here today because I, I mean, I've been watching all of your stuff on on small town monsters and let me tell you i absolutely loved uh alaskan coastal sasquatch the the work you guys did on that is absolutely amazing uh so congratulations on uh, like the entire thing is phenomenal thank you thanks for having me Oh yeah, it was it was so good. I was glued, and that is literally what I did on Christmas Day. <laughs> it was the second half. Uh, so, for the you know for the audience, t- tell everybody a bit about you and how you got involved with Small Town Monsters. Because I mean, what a phenomenal matchup! Sure, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my name is Alex Petikov. I'm a filmmaker, outdoorsman, uh, cryptozoology researcher. That's what I like to say. You know, I'm, I don't have a bio, biology background or anything like that. I've just always loved nature and wildlife and cryptids kind of are easy to get into, I think, if you combine a lot of those passions. So um, I've just been always interested in the Sasquatch topic in particular. I say that's my favorite to investigate just because almost anywhere you go in North America, for the most part, you can encounter local stories of something mysterious, man-like, hair-covered, living in the mountains or in the swamps. It's not uncommon uh, in North America, at least, and some parts of the world. So I've always been interested in that. How I got matched up with Small Town Monsters is, I think it was back in back in 2015 or so, I traveled to Loch Ness. It was my first sort of cryptozoology destination, I guess. I went there after I got out of school and decided to just do a short kind of film about it. I, you know, I've always liked filmmaking, so it was sort of good to combine those. Did a short film on the Loch Ness Monster, put that out there, and at some point, you know, within the next few months, some guy named Seth Breedlove reached out to me and mm-hmm. said he wanted to show this at a, a Minerva Monster Day event that they hosted in Ohio. And my first reaction was, why would anybody want to show this thing? <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's like a 12-minute movie. It was my first first attempt. I wouldn't say it was uh, stellar, but you know, as artists, you're always critical of earlier yeah. work and improving. So yeah, I, I met Seth then when I traveled down there to attend the Mothman Festival in West Virginia. And then I went up to their event in Minerva and showed the film and just started talking to Seth. And for whatever reason, he seemed to enjoy my work and wanted me to do a series with Small Town Monsters, which I ended up doing in 2017 and 2018 called On the Trail of Champ, which is about the Lake Champlain monster of Lake Champlain in Vermont and upstate New York and juts a little bit into the Canadian province of Quebec. Very interesting. I've always been into aquatic cryptids. Champ is probably one of my favorite cryptids, but Bigfoot is definitely my favorite to research. But I started doing just kind of open-ended YouTube documentaries and just interviewing folks. I wanted to do a feature film on Bigfoot, and I started talking to folks, and I realized, oh, wow, this topic is very expansive. I mean, I'd always been into it, but 
once you kind of start getting out in the field, <clears throat> whether it's going out with researchers or interviewing people who have had pretty compelling testimonies, it kind of got me hooked and uh, just kept working with Small Town Monsters per project. And we just kind of kept, uh, I would do crew positions or I would help them out with some of the other films. Uh, obviously, Small Town Monsters has been doing a lot of films since about 2014, 15, been quite quite a journey. And yeah. uh, about, gosh, I want to say early 2021, Seth and I were kind of toying with the idea of doing more YouTube-related <clears throat> documentaries as opposed to the traditional kind of release them on Amazon, release them on streaming platforms. But it was the idea was a YouTube series basically investigating Bigfoot cases. And I had always wanted to do something like that, um, whereas most of my work prior to that was sort of behind the camera. I wasn't really a part of the production. I was just interviewing somebody or telling a story about somebody else. Whereas, uh, you know, I've been <clears throat> researching myself in my state of New Hampshire and other places pretty much since I've been interested in the topic or when I actually started getting out, you know, about six, seven years ago at this point. So I had kind of accrued a number of sightings and I had a, a list of sightings in New Hampshire. And he basically said, you know, let's do this. I mean, and I basically it was a one man show. I started doing what was called Beyond the Trail. It's kind of Bigfoot Beyond the Trail now, sort of interchangeable. But it's uh, the premise is it's basically an investigative adventure series uh, with myself and sometimes other members of our crew investigating interesting Bigfoot cases around North America. And since about May of 2021, when the first one came out, we have, I think, 24 or 25 documentaries on YouTube uh, with this series. And they're usually all you know, at least 30 minutes to an hour. Uh, the Alaskan series, of course, was quite long. So long story short, that's how Bigfoot Beyond the Trail became a thing. And uh, it, it's more of a YouTube-based kind of series. And it it allows me to basically investigate these cases I've always wanted to look into in my own way. I'm not beholden to somebody telling me how to do it or uh, telling someone else's story. You know, we do interview other people and, and witnesses and that sort of thing and incorporate it into the story. But ultimately, it's us going out there and trying to find evidence or just explore some of these incredible environments that are present in North America. So that's the long story short, I suppose, although that was a bit of a long answer. <laughs> Isn't it cool that uh, technology has advanced to the point where people like yourself can can make things uh, for themselves without ha having to have a yes. lot of big studio money and that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, it's truly interesting because you do see a lot of programs. Uh, I mean, I grew up on, I think, more of the golden era of cryptozoology TV, as, as I'm sure a lot of other folks, especially older mm -hmm. than me, have. I was a kid of the 90s. You know, X-Files was big then. Exactly. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. that show is fictional, but I think it inspired a lot of people looking in these directions. But, you know, some of the older stuff in search of and uh, Monster Quest, Animal X, some of that sort of stuff, where I think there was still a, a somewhat serious look at the topic. It wasn't until you had the infusion of reality TV into that TV landscape that everything kind of went downhill. And now you have shows that you know openly fake evidence and they fake content just for the sake yeah. of uh, viewership, whereas we don't have to do that. We have no obligation to some network to tell us, hey, do this, do that. Uh, you know, Small Town Monsters is in a way morphed into a kind of network of its own where basically, I mean, we have so many other different projects going on. I'm not necessarily involved in all of them. You know, I do I do kind of my corner, whereas we have somebody else doing maybe their own series. Then we have Seth doing more of the kind of traditional uh, STM documentaries that have sort of gained notoriety. So it's a good mix of things, I think, at this point. And um, it's just, again, it's a lot of fun for me because this is the sort of stuff that I was kind of doing anyway, I mean, looking into these cases, but obviously we're able to travel a little bit more to locations that are kind of bucket list places. So as I mentioned, I mean, at, to this point, we've got, I mean, 24, I believe films. I mean, we've been from everywhere from New Hampshire, Maine, Northern California, Bluff Creek, Patterson Gimmel Film Site, Oregon, Rocky Mountains, yeah. Washington State, Florida, Georgia, uh alaska of course west virginia i mean the list goes on uh, there's a lot of different locations we've been to that are either known hotspots or somebody's invited us onto their property like in the case of the alaskan coastal sasquatch so we, we basically get to do kind of what what we'd like to do with the with the material and as i mentioned you know we don't have to uh we're, we're basically just trying to tell the story as accurately as we can i mean if we experience something out there we'll show it if if we don't we're not going to make up 
noises or put in some kind of fake thermal footage just for the sake of entertainment. I mean, we have enough of a following at this point with just telling the truth about it that uh, that clearly has invalidated the kind of claims that, oh, you need to fake this sort of stuff to actually have it be uh, enjoyable, which I just completely disagree with. I, I totally agree. And, you know, I, I think that's why you've got the following that you do with, with small town monsters is because it, so many people are just so sick and tired of the they know it's fake you know they'll turn the tv on and it's you know well that was fun for an hour but at the end of the day you know it doesn't answer questions you know in your heart that it's not true um and i think that's that's part of what is so refreshing about what you guys are doing like even in the parapsychology world like i lean a bit into cryptids every once in a while but um you know, it, it's I, I can't even tell you the amount of network shows that I've turned down because that's <laughs> what they've wanted to do is it's like, well, you know, do you guys understand that, you know, I'm not willing to fake this? Well, all of a sudden you don't get a call back. Right. And it's like, you know, so I I think what you guys are doing is is the, the right way to go, in my opinion. But I mean, you got an email, of course, from Scott about this coastal property what was it about this email? Because, I mean, you must get a ton of emails. What was it about his email that caught your attention about this about this property in Alaska? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we I do get a lot of, I get a ton of Facebook messages, Instagram, yeah. emails, especially people just saying, hey, I've, I've experienced this or I have this happening on my property or I live here and there's I've had a sighting. I mean, I love getting that kind of stuff and I really do try to respond to people. But obviously, we kind of have to pick and choose our battles here with where we want to go and what we'd like to cover. Uh, and something about this email was just different. Um, it seemed kind of sincere. And obviously, I'm skeptical. That's sort of my default position because there's so much BS out there, unfortunately. And just uh, as you mentioned, whether it's the network stuff or just people trying to kind of pull your leg. I mean, it happens. People will pull jokes and, and pranks and hoaxes and that sort of stuff. So obviously, I, I like to feel things out. But there's something about the email it just seemed very genuine. Also, Scott was originally from the New England area as well. So um, there was kind of a weird connection actually to a, a town that he lived in, in in rural New Hampshire involved with a case called, you know, the Marlboro Monkey, which was about this sort of sighting of this orangutan-like creature and subsequent Bigfoot investigations that I was doing with some colleagues at the time in that area. And he happened to say, well, I used to live literally right there before I moved to Alaska. So it was just a strange synchronicity type thing and i don't really use that word a lot but it was just sort of funny timing but um something about the story so basically for folks that aren't familiar i got this email and he basically told me he had this property in rural alaska this guy uh, comes from a very professional background i have no reason to believe he would need bigfoot in his life at all um former military (laughs) guy you know he was uh in the military for quite a while a big game hunter in alaska has been living up there and basically built a property out in a remote coastal area just to sort of have a place to go fish and get away from work and that sort of thing with friends. I mean, that was really the intention of that place. But uh, from the moment they got there, essentially they started experiencing strange things, which they had trouble explaining, you know, football sized rocks being thrown that they could visually see horizontally flying out from the tree line into the water, uh, what's roaring type noises whistling wood knocking kind of sounds rocks being thrown at them cabin into the boat different sorts of situations and he told me about the the, this in the email and then i actually talked to him and i quickly saw you he was very legit he was saying oh if you have if you want to talk to my friend who's a biologist he's been out there and experienced stuff he was happy to put me in touch with other folks and he sent along these audio files and those were some of the ones that were played in the first part of the alaskan coastal sasquatch which to me were very intriguing. I mean, I've heard a lot of alleged Bigfoot audio over the years, and um, a lot of it ends up being coyote. I think that's probably the number one misidentification for mm. big alleged Bigfoot audio because coyotes can actually produce a ridiculously uh, wide range of sounds. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah, it's it, and it can just be one. You know, one will go off, and the rest will then follow in the typical yipping, which you'd expect, but. So I've heard a lot of audio, you know, there's things like the Sierra sounds and other things that have been out there for many years, but I was wondered why there wasn't more of that nature. And when I heard some of the audio that Scott had sent me, I was kind of blown away. And I thought, this is really intriguing, especially 
after he told me the person who had essentially cleaned up and discovered a lot of that audio that they had recorded out there was David Ellis of the Olympic Project, who is somebody that I've grown a tremendous respect for. Uh, I've worked with them. You know, we've been out to the Olympic Project in their area and the kind of so-called nest site that they have. And we spent some time with them filming uh, literally a month before Scott had emailed me. So it was kind of, it was, it was about April, May of 2021. So it was kind of the timing again was really interesting on that front. Uh, and it was just so intriguing. And I started kind of speaking with Scott and trying to figure out a time when to get to Alaska. And uh, he was open to have us out there, you know, wanted us to wanted to have us out there filming or not. He just said, you know, I, I've had people here investigating before. Um, and some of the folks in Alaska, like Larry Beans Baxter and Rob Roy Menzies, and there's not a lot of Bigfoot sort of people in Alaska, but he was really curious to try to get to the bottom of some of the experiences they've had out at that cabin, uh, which have been pretty intriguing. I'd say there's quite a lot of them. And I mean, I, I'm happy to go through some of them, but uh, to kind of wrap up our involvement, we finally were able to go out there in May of 2022. So just this past May, uh, and we spent eight full days essentially out there at the property. Wow. And uh, to put into perspective, it's it's on the Kenai Peninsula of Alaska, which is extremely rugged. The coasts are dotted with these temperate rainforests, essentially the same ones that stretch from the Kenai Peninsula of Alaska down to Northern California and everything in between, which is that sort of temperate rainforest zone, which is very, very well known for Sasquatch history. I mean, some of the greatest concentration of sightings, uh, tribal folklore from the coastal peoples, the totems, you know, the Zonaqua, all those sorts of things that, you know, British Columbia and Southeast Alaska, all those places. So this is a very similar environment to places I'd been to before, but the remoteness factor was just that much more. It's a, it's over an hour boat ride from the nearest small port to get to this property. So you're adding that element. You're going through these bays and inlets with uh, 3000 foot mountains just looming right over the water and it's a, you know, I, I venture to say it's a bit of a treacherous kind of trek just to get out there. But when you're at the property, you're essentially steeped in these mountains. You've got the coast right there and you have pretty much everything in Alaska that is dangerous out there in terms of wildlife. So coastal brown bears, which are massive, got tons of black bear, uh, lynx, uh, moose, which are, believe it or not, the most dangerous animal in Alaska per statistics yep. for a capture. <laughs> Canada yeah. and Alberta too. <laughs> yeah, same here. And oh, yeah. uh, I live in moose country here in the Northeast, and uh, they're no joke. Um, no, so it, especially it, oh, yeah. at mating season. Oh yeah, smoke. I've, oh, I've boy, had some yeah. run-ins with moose up in northern Maine that uh, you know were, were less than pleasant. We'll put it that way. But uh, but yeah. anyway, yeah, the cabin is just the ecosystem around there is incredible, and in the water in the ocean right there, you have orcas and uh, humpback whales. I mean, sea lions, seals, Beautiful. it's, it's such an incredible environment. So it was definitely our most ambitious adventure and probably one of the most scenic. And I mean, we've been blessed to go to so many beautiful places in, in North America, yet this was something Gosh. I think that just simply stands out. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, and you know, you're here talking about the environment and Alaska is, is so similar to uh, in places in Alberta and BC and whatnot, but it, it really is this, this world on, uh, unto itself. And you, and you guys were able to capture that so well in what you shot and in the drone footage and, and things like that. What challenges did you find Alaska brought to a, a Sasquatch investigation that other places haven't? Yeah, that's a good, good question. Uh, well, you know, we've kind of come to a point where we sort of know how we're going to research. I mean, because when we're out there, we're trying these techniques, we're trying to look for evidence, uh, be very sure. rational and skeptical about things. You know, not every noise in the woods is Bigfoot, not every impression is going to be a Bigfoot, obviously. Um, so we've kind of figured out how to do it. And we're used to being in areas with a lot of dangerous animals. I mean, uh, South Florida, anywhere in Florida with alligators and uh, water moccasins, one of the most venomous snakes in the in North America. And a lot of the places we've been to out west, whether it's in the Colorado Rockies or Oregon, Washington, California, Utah, you've got mountain lions. So that's kind of another added sort of threat. Uh, people, I think, are still the most dangerous in all of my experiences in the woods. People are the weirdest and the most unpredictable. But Alaska obviously brought the challenge of them dealing with brown bears, which completely used to dealing with black bears. I mean, they're everywhere in North America, essentially. I, I live with them where I live in the Northeast. Uh, every other place we've seen evidence of black bears, essentially, but brown bears are are a little bit challenging. They're different because even they're even a little bit different than grizzly bears. Grizzly bear, I mean, they're the same exact animal, but 
the coastal brown bears are actually, they get a little bit bigger than the interior grizzlies. So these are the types of grizzlies you might find in, say, Montana or Alberta, British Columbia, in that yeah. sort of um, a region that goes up towards Canada, and, and then obviously into interior Alaska. So the grizzlies have to fight a little bit for their food, whereas brown bears have access to both terrestrial and mm -hmm. seafood. So, you know, they're eating... Yeah stuff on land but they're also eating beached whales and sea lions and obviously uh, salmon and fish and extremely rich nutrient heavy uh, diets so you know they're essentially they, they have so much food at the disposal they grow a little bit bigger and then you have the kodiak brown bears which live on kodiak island which are i mean behemoths of bears so that was a little bit scary because uh, you know brown bears grizzly bears they are sort of an ambush predator so it's not like a black bear or for the most part you can kind of find your way out of a situation or they'll be scared of you, which has happened plenty of other times. So that was a little bit disconcerting, I think. But other challenges, of course, would just be the remoteness of the location. So anytime you're out in the woods, whether you're backpacking or hiking or just walking a state park, you know, in a semi-urban area, you could fall over, get injured. That's usually one of the more common things, even more common than getting attacked by an animal is some sort of self-sustained injury, whether you fall, break a leg, break a hand, you know, something like that may happen somewhere in an area where you can get access to a vehicle pretty easily, get help. But out in Alaska, in an area like this, where we're over an hour boat ride just from the nearest small port, I mean, that any kind of basic injury that can turn pretty life-threatening quickly, I mean, especially depending how serious it is, of course. Uh, so that was definitely a little bit something to keep in mind. I mean, obviously, we don't let that stop us, but we try to be cognizant of safety. And, and in a place like the cabin, I mean, safety in numbers is key. Uh, you know, you're walking around some of these areas. You can't really hear much when you're in these sort of temperate rainforest in terms of movement because it's all uh, that layer of moss. So you could have a brown bear just over the hill and you might not even necessarily hear him. If he's being stealthy, he absolutely can do that. So uh, mm -hmm. strength in numbers sort of thing, that's that's what we had to do out there. But I mean, those are probably some of the biggest challenges, I guess, concerns. They didn't end up being as, um, you know, as prevalent as we would have liked, which was great. You know, no, we didn't actually see any brown bears up close or anything. Uh, we saw plenty of black bears from a distance, found evidence of them that we were kind of right on their heels. Nobody got hurt or anything, thankfully, uh, which is always a risk whenever you're out in the in the bush, especially in remote areas. But I just felt the threats were all amplified in this area as opposed to, you know, say, hiking into the high winters of Utah or being in the mountains of North Georgia. Sure. Yeah. Oh, that that makes total sense. I, You know, I know out, the, out in the wilds, even here in, in Canada, I mean, there's areas that are just completely untouched. And it really does. It brings it home, you know, that we are not, the, <laughs> you know, we are not as dominant as we think we are, you know, when we're wandering around as the urban environment and, and, and things like that. But you spent eight solid days there. How did this progress for you? What was the first incident that made you go... Oh my God, there's something here. Yeah. So, I mean, our approach was essentially we were trying to kind of mimic what the usual activity at the cabin is first. You know, they don't, they don't go out there and just start wood knocking and doing all this big shooter sure. stuff when they get out there. They just, for the most part, when they go out there, I mean, they're not really expecting anything to happen. They go out there again to, to, for fishing, to just have fun, to get away from work. They'll go out there three, four days at a time, you know, a long weekend or whatever. And just have fun, eat some fresh fish they just caught, that sort of thing, or eat some leftover moose steaks from the previous season's hunt, that kind of thing. And that's when they'd have, you know, when somebody would be leaving the cabin, let's say go to the outhouse and they might get growled at, or they'll hear this hollow baseball bat sounding noise that comes from up on the hill or these mystery gunshots that seem to happen whenever somebody is exiting the cabin or doing something around the property. So our, our approach was to kind of just first few days, play it cool, just do a fire, just say, hey, we're here, you know, nothing crazy. If there was something in the area, I mean, I don't know about you, but if there were a place for something like Sasquatch to exist and thrive, I would imagine an environment like this would be completely ideal as opposed to some other areas, perhaps. Uh, so that was our kind of assumption, just kind of play it cool, um, do a little, just kind of hang out, you know, do some fire, that sort of stuff. And then explore. I mean, during the day, we'd go hiking and that kind of thing and just sort of push into different areas and look for any kind of sign of anything. 
And um, I suppose the first incident happened technically on our first full day. So our first day out there, we had left um, town, you know, we drove from Anchorage down and it's a, it's a few hour drive to Seward. And we got there about maybe midday, something like that, maybe late afternoon. So we had late afternoon until the evening and our first full day was the next day out there. And we actually decided to go hike towards this kind of abandoned looking cabin. I mean, it wasn't like a dilapidated cabin. I mean, we had, we had been flying our drone in the area and there was uh, Scott and some of the guys who have been there before, like Rob Roy, they're like, oh yeah, there is a cabin up there. We've never seen anyone ever go up there. It's just kind of, I don't know, it looks like it's unattended. And we we actually flew the drone over, went and checked it out, saw that it probably hadn't been used in 10, 15 years. I mean, it wasn't, like I said, dilapidated or destroyed. It was just all locked up and just looked like nobody had been there in a long time. It was very far back into the woods. And some of the stuff around it was kind of destroyed, whether from snowfall water that kind of thing uh, so it didn't look like it was in great shape so when we were coming back from that we spent kind of a, a we were across the bay from the cabin i'm sure is i'm trying to describe this as i can obviously in my mind i know exactly how it looks but i realize folks might not be familiar with it but where the cabin is is basically on the right side of this large bay and, on, and we were on the other side so we actually had to take a boat into the center of the bay and then get on a small zodiac kind of like a dinghy and row to the shore so we spent kind of a few hours exploring this area and we're coming back and we noticed that scott and his friend are already on their way over with the boat and we thought that was kind of weird because we would just call them on the radio hey we're ready to get picked up kind of thing they are already on the way and when they when we started loading in the boat he said hey did you guys shoot a gun we said, no, why would we do that? He said, well, that's why we came over here. We thought you guys were in trouble or something. We thought we heard a gunshot. Oh, wow. And, Interesting. And, I mean, we were armed, yes, because in a place like Alaska, of course, um, yeah. you, you want to have some uh, some firepower just in case. I mean, I don't want to have to kill any animal, but in, in a life or death situation, uh, it's just one another tool in the, in the inventory. So none of us had shot a gun. I mean, we wouldn't have a reason to unless we were threatened. And Essentially, what happened was they were hanging out inside the cabin. We were doing our thing. You know, we have walkie communication whenever we would need anything. But uh, what, the guy was staying upstairs in the cabin with the window open. And he thought he heard a gunshot. And he tells Scott, hey, I, I heard what sounded like a gunshot. Maybe they're in trouble. So they raced over to get us. And nope, nobody shot a gun. So, uh, And apparently, it happened right as we were getting out from the wood line to the shore to get back into the dinghy. And to or essentially get it ready for them to come pick us up, we would be waiting probably for them to come get us, but they were already on on route to us. So it was interesting because again, it happened as I mentioned earlier. These mystery gunshots seem to happen when people are doing things. Now that was kind of an instant. I didn't hear it. None of us heard it because we were stomping through the woods. But they heard it over at the cabin and thought it was unusual enough to come and get us. That was kind of the first incident. Uh, and a few days later, towards the end of the trip, I actually ended up hearing one of these mystery gunshots. Uh, we had all been napping in the cabin during midday. I mean, in Alaska, you know, you have the sun going down at later times. And this was in May, so it, it never really got fully dark. Towards the beginning of our trip, we did see some star cover first few nights. But then it would just be kind of this sort of dusk, kind of just barely getting dark. And then obviously a couple months after that, it would be light pretty much till midnight. But uh, I, we'd been sleeping during the day, you know, the long days out there, you can stay up a lot later. And I kind of happened to just get outside of the cabin. It was, it was the only day when it was very foggy and it created a very spooky, misty environment. So I took my camera out and was just getting some shots of the, the kind of ambiance there. And I saw what I thought was a sea lion splashing in the bay. So I happened to be filming and just on my tripod, I had my camera, my Sony A7 S2 just kind of pointed at that sea lion and I hear what sounds like this mystery or this gunshot. I mean, it just sounded like a gunshot. And I thought that's really weird. And I happened to be filming. So I obviously got that filmed. Uh, and then I go back inside the cabin and the same guy who heard the gunshot the other day, because of the where, where his room was, he has his window open all the time. Cause he's always listening. He said, did you hear that? I said, yeah. I mean, I was filming. He said, I just heard two more right as you were kind of getting in the cabin because I was standing outside on the deck. And then it's really strange. Uh, I mean, it sounded like a gunshot. That's the closest mm -hmm. thing I could say it sounded like. I mean, it didn't sound like an avalanche. There there have been some in that area, but it's a more sustained sound. I mean, rocks falling, I suppose that could be it. But what's so weird is the sort of how that happens 
at that location at least pretty regularly. I mean, Scott talks about it, having experienced it before. And it always seems to happen when somebody's either, I was the only one outside the cabin. So it's happening when people are doing things, which is kind of unusual. I don't know what that is. Can I associate it with Sasquatch? I mean, I don't know. I don't, I can't say for sure. Obviously I didn't see what did it, but uh, upon analysis of the sound captured on the camera, I'd sent it to David Ellis, who again uh, is, was involved with the original findings of a lot of those sounds that Scott had sent him uh, and just is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to spectral analysis with spectrogram uh, for audio analysis. He spent so much time looking into it, you know, so I sent a lot of that audio to him and I sent that to him and he said, well, what's interesting is gunshots, when you actually look at them in a kind of spectrogram analysis, they have two signatures technically. So you'll hear the initial blast and then the, the, the kind of the reverb or the echo to our ears, it just sounds like a single sound, but if you break it down, it's actually two sounds, but your ears are not good enough to distinguish that. I mean, it happens in a split second. Anyway, he said with this kind of mystery, but it's just a single noise. There's, it's not a gunshot and there was nobody else out there. I mean, we would have known somebody was out there. There's, you would see a boat or uh, there'd be some kind of indication. And this has just happened time and time again. I mean, I don't, I, I highly doubt somebody's living out there that hasn't been detected uh, in, in this kind of environment, uh, it very hard. That would be a very hard existence. So it was just it was one of those weird things. Can I chalk it up to Bigfoot? Not necessarily. You know, it's just, it, it's a kind of running theory. Maybe it's associated with it. I don't know, but it's something that happens there a lot at that property among other kind of more uh, familiar sounding wood knock noises, which have we've heard in other parts of North America, but this was just kind of really unique to this location uh, Chris Spencer, also the Olympic Project, uh, who does, who's my other kind of go-to audio guy, aside from David, is also incredible when it comes to alleged Sasquatch audio or just audio in general, being able to identify misidentified audio, that sort of thing. He said you know, it was very unusual as well. He had actually done some work up on Prince of Wales Island in Alaska, and they would hear this kind of thing occasionally at night from up in the mountains, and they didn't know what it was, and nobody really seemed to know what it was. So strange, and and it, again, this is why I love what you guys do is because you you know you really put this stuff through the ringer in terms of trying to figure out what it is, yeah. and like it it's it's so odd. And for those of you people out there who have not seen this documentary, you can hear this sound because it's in the it's it's actually in the the, the film. Um, so you can you can see everything that Alex is, is talking about. And this place is literally that remote. It's not like somebody's, you know, trucking in there with their truck hunting or something like that. There's there's nothing, there is nothing for miles and miles. But I mean you guys tried a bunch of different things when you were there and you sort of ran the gamut of everything from playing music and right. singing bowls and wood knocking. What do you think if if anything was was the most effective out of out of everything you guys did? You know, honestly, it might even just be just hanging out and doing doing your thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's yeah. so many of the times when we have experienced wood knocks or strange noises or stuff thrown in your direction, it's when you least expect it. You know, we're on the ready and everything's good to go. That's usually when nothing happens. Um, and so our true. idea is, you know, <laughs> and this is something not necessarily, my, I didn't come up with this idea at all. Plenty of have done this before me is the idea of kind of seeming interesting, doing something that might stick out. How many campers go out and put on a light show, especially in an area this remote? I mean, that's probably never been done in a place like that. Um, so that's that was the kind of idea maybe pushing the envelope if these things are some kind of flesh and blood primate type creature they probably are curious i mean there seems to be two types of encounters generally when it comes to the sasquatch uh topic where one is a sort of unexpected person saw it when they were their hunting stand or most commonly they saw it cross the road they didn't expect it at all they're shocked and it was kind of a fleeting glimpse sort of thing. And the other tier is sort of campers and people out in the woods that are doing something that something comes to their camp or they have some sort of things, incident rocks thrown, that sort of thing. So uh, honestly, the, one of the nights we had some pretty interesting activity. And, and again, I can't say it's necessarily Sasquatch, but it was very unusual was um, it's towards the end of the first Alaskan coastal Sasquatch which was night four, I believe. And we had Rob Roy Menzies out there. It was his last night out with us. And we had tried this multiple nights. We were up at this, what we call the upper fire pit, which is a fire pit kind of on a cliff 
overlooking the ocean uh, with some trees in the way. And it, there's a big hill that goes behind it, which a uh, very interesting kind of area. There's been possible activity in that area. People prior to uh, Scott purchasing the cabin, some campers actually had built that fire pit that we were using, some guys from Georgia, apparently, and they were interested in buying the property and they wanted nothing to do with it because they reported for multiple nights that something was running around their camp. And it, it, at one point, one of them jumped out of the tent and something ran through the woods sounding like a bulldozer. And well, yes, that could possibly be a bear. Uh, they just, they were kind of freaked out. So uh, we were up at this upper fire pit, which is away from the cabin. I mean, it's a little bit, it's maybe two, three minute walk through the woods. You can see the cabin from up there a little bit distant. I mean, that's not terribly far, but it's far enough away that we felt, okay, we're kind of up here. We're more vulnerable. We're just out in the open. And we had, we'd just done a fire that night. I don't even remember if we, were, we weren't playing music that night. We were just kind of hanging out. I think Ron was maybe playing his flute a little bit. Um, we had a flute. And the singing bowl, we're just kind of doing our thing. We're, we're honestly just having fun talking. And all of a sudden, I hear what sounds like a wood knock to my left, just break the kind of silence out there. And I, and I go, oh, oh, oh everybody's shh, kind of quiet. And we all quiet down. And we proceed to hear what sounded like rocks being thrown or, I don't know, I can even say thrown, just rocks smashing other rocks and then falling into the water. That's what it sounded like. I mean, there was a few that, we were just kind of like, whoa, it sounded like something. It did sound like a throw because you'd hear it was kind of to the right of us. There's a point that goes out from from where we were. And it's just this big kind of heavily forested area that just juts out into the ocean. That's kind of an own ecosystem of its own. And you'd hear limbs and things being hit or smashed as as what sounded like a rock would fly towards the ocean, but it wouldn't just fall in the water. You would hear the shoreline there has a lot of rocks so you'd hear rocks smashing rocks and then falling into the water um, which was really weird i mean we'd heard sea lions and other things out there and different nights that they would stay splash and they make a lot of noise but when there's sea lions in the bay you can tell i mean they're uh, letting out these horrible noises and splashing all the time it's pretty distinct this was very unusual we heard these rocks kind of falling and then we've heard you know very clear wood knock type sound as we're all kind of talking and just uh, you know trying to gather ourselves and we're kind of so caught off guard. I mean, here we all, we all have these thermals and cameras and audio recorders and everything. And we're just kind of moment where you get caught with your pants down sort of thing. Mm -hmm. It's just a shock. So immediately we all kick into gear and start scanning with the thermals and can't see anything. I mean, it didn't sound like it was super close, but it sounded close enough. And then Rob Roy, he's somebody who's been to the cabin multiple years and experienced quite a bit out there uh, has said, you know, this, this, this kind of fits the bill. It's sort of like a, Hey, we're still here or, you know, some sort of interesting kind of incident where kind of wakes you up a little bit. I mean, he's had stuff like that happen too, where they've heard very similar sounds. And we had a lot of recordings of just random moments throughout the night where it would sound like rocks, heavy rocks being thrown, hitting rocks, smashing into things and plunking into the water and it would all happen within a 20 second span. And then you wouldn't hear anything like that the rest of the night. Uh, and that happened multiple nights where we hear that. But this was that one night that sort of we weren't doing anything and we just heard these weird sounds. And then the rest of the night, there were other similar wood knock kind of sounds after we had departed. Because after that incident, we stayed in the area and just listened and didn't hear anything else like it. It was just sort of a, it was like an outburst moment. So can I again say that Sasquatch? I, I don't know. It was just mm -hmm. so strange in the moment i don't know what other animal would have been doing something like that in that moment for what reason to let its presence be known it was there i mean i don't think any of the wildlife necessarily do that in alaska especially you know, 11 12 at night whenever that happened um so that was a well, weird one well and to pick stuff up too i mean that's a, yeah. it's a very specific skill <laughs> you know you're not necessarily seeing bear picking things up with you know with their hands or even right. with even with their they mouth have no thumbs exactly right, <laughs> yeah, right. like it's it's that, such a specific skill that is such a strange one and and just to kind of uh, finish up on that some of the sounds we had recorded some of these kind of rock clacking noises at night i had some folks tell me well could that have been sea otters from the the ocean i said oh yeah some of those lighter sounding sounds probably but we had one or two nights where sea lions were going off all night and you just hear these and they're going and you hear you know one will start and then three others the on the other side of the bay will go and it was like this cacophony of 
sea lions, but it was so distinct again, because there's so many of them it wasn't just a one off random incident, uh, especially these louder rock clunks and what, the ones we heard. I mean, it just sounded like it was coming from higher up and smashing things along the way as, as it went into the water there. And again, I mean, my associating with Sasquatch perhaps, but there is observed behavior of large rocks being thrown into the water. I mean, one of the first incidents that happened to Scott was visually seeing a football sized rock go at a horizontal level from the tree line and smash into the water to the point where him and his friend who were out there chopping wood to kind of chopping down trees to build the property were kind of shocked. And they said, well, what kind of animal is doing that? And others have observed rocks flying towards the cabin and, uh, you know, falling into the water or falling out of the deck of the cabin, that sort of thing, kind of right around them by the campfire. So it's an observed behavior that's happened there before. I mean, we're, it's, you know, it's, I don't think it's a stretch to say perhaps that's what was going on. But I, again, I cannot confirm that 100%. And I don't want to deceive people by saying that was definitely a Sasquatch, but it was, it was definitely interesting, whatever it was. That, that I can say. Well, I think with so many of these cryptid incidents, you know, I, I think that's where everybody's kind of sitting, like, um, you know, here in Alberta, up, up north, further up north and, and further south. I mean, I'm in Edmonton, so I'm kind of smack in the middle. But, um, you know, whether you go north or south here, there's Bigfoot reports. And right. uh, same thing with, uh, of course, BC. Yeah. Sorry, Mike. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it, it's it's interesting how you were saying that, you know, just just sometimes sitting around and hanging out is is usually the way to go. And we find that we've we've got quite a number of interesting cryptid critters here in Alberta, Dogman being one and then uh, Bigfoot being the other one. And it's it's yeah, it's just a consistent vibe of just as soon as you start trying you're it's like you're putting a wrench in the wheel you know that it's it, as soon as you start trying things tend to either stop or not happen but as soon as you're you're having fun and or you're you're sitting around and just being relaxed and in that state of allowing all of a sudden it's like everything seems to just just come to life it's it, I, just so interesting but one of the one of the most unique things that i heard in this specific instance in the specific documentary which i had not heard before was this weird sound that scott talked about of the baby crying oh yes which is so strange oh my gosh so yeah this this is so weird mike um and there's been other instances throughout bigfoot research history and, and whatnot of of like humming and singing yeah. and all of this kind of a thing but this baby cry alex i'm gonna let you, i'm gonna just let you tell it because it's so <laughs> strange it is so odd Believe me, that that actually went thinking back on it now when you'd asked me earlier about what was so interesting about this case was, I mean, all that audio that was sent, but the baby audio in particular, I think I must have played that a hundred times after hearing it and just trying to match it up with known animals. So essentially, uh, one of the weirdest things that's happened out of that cabin, uh, there's been a lot of weird audio. I mean, you've got these roars, these whoops, uh, knocks type sounds, what mm. sounds like um, like mimicking or not mimicking, but chat like gibberish chatter kind of thing. That's strange ape sounds. That's essentially a lot of the audio, and, and that's played in the first part of the Alaskan Coastal Sasquatch, kind of right at the beginning. But one of the weirdest ones is what sounds like a baby crying. And so the story goes that uh, there's only been a handful of occasions when women have actually been on the property. Usually it would be Scott's wife and some of her friends. And I believe is only twice essentially uh, because it, again, for the most part, this cabin was a retreat and you know, Scott takes his, his buddies out there and, you know, they have a kind of a guy's hangout, you know, just fishing and, and doing that sort of stuff. Very rugged. I mean, it's, you're out in Alaska. It's a very rugged kind of place to be in general, but they had heard what apparently sounded like a, a baby crying sound coming from the woods happened on, as I mentioned, two occasions. The, it's only ever happened when women are out there. And the second time, I believe, is when the recording was done. That was after Scott started consulting with people like David Ellis and others about actually trying to document some of the stuff they were experiencing and keeping a journal and leaving audio recorders and cameras and that sort of thing. And uh, there was an occasion where his wife and her friend, I believe, they were on the property and they were kind of blueberry picking and just sort of hanging out in the woods. And, and they had both independent. One was actually at the outhouse and the other was kind of in the woods and had independently heard what sounded like a baby crying sound. 
and Scott had told them before, you know, this is something this, that, you know, that was heard the first time there was women out there when it was his wife. So they didn't really want to say anything. And then they eventually ended up talking to each other about it and said they both had heard it and then spilled the beans to Scott. And he said, well, okay. I mean, if you guys reported that, I, I have it on audio. I mean, I have the audio recorder out there and that's where that recording comes. And I mean, it, I've heard stories before, uh, usually not even associated necessarily with Bigfoot. I've heard it a few times, but parts of like Appalachia and the mines, some of these areas, I've heard stories of people hearing baby crying, baby crying noises and that sort of thing and other parts of North America, but I've never really heard any audio of it. It's just usually it's associated with ghosts or some other kind of thing, not necessarily with Bigfoot, but this audio to me was one of the most interesting I've heard. It literally sounds like a baby or a baby or a child crying in the woods. That's, I mean, I don't, I don't know how, how else to describe it. Obviously I've heard it so many times and I've tried so hard to match it up with known suspect animals. So porcupine is one that would come to mind uh, because they can, you know, do a kind of cry. Uh, foxes can make crying type sounds. Uh, just other critters that might be able to do something like that for that area. I mean, it didn't, there's not much that matched. I just couldn't find anything that really matches that sound from the natural world, which is really weird. So, I mean, you could say, yeah, maybe it was a, a weird sounding porcupine. I would expect, and we, rec we, we recorded porcupines out there, by the way. Uh, we had gotten one on a trail camera and had filmed one uh, at, while exploring a glacier not far from there. So they're in the area. But why is it that the only two times they've ever observed or recorded baby crying sounds was when women happen to be there. They haven't heard this sound any other time. And they've had pl spent plenty of time. We spent the longest single period out there. And as I mentioned, experienced porcupines and hadn't heard anything like that. So that's the really weird part about it. And it gets stranger when you actually look into, and this is something that caught my uh, attention initially when talking with Scott was, I'd heard uh, for years about stories from Southeast Alaska, from the natives there about baby crying sounds coming from the woods and that kind of being associated with Bigfoot or associated with the Kushtaka, which was described as kind of this otter man, which a lot of people think looks like a giant otter. But from what I understand the descriptions, it was just sort of a hairy man-like thing that was seen swimming. Yikes. And so, but to me, I, I look at that and I say, okay, you know, otter man. I mean, it's just kind of a hairy thing that swims between channels and islands. And that's the otter man. Mm -hmm. And that's what's described as creating these baby crying sounds. Well, we, we've had sightings recorded in British Columbia and Southeast Alaska of Sasquatches seen swimming between small channels. I mean, Vancouver mm -hmm. Island, you yep. get mountain lions, bear, uh, elk swimming Everything, between yeah. channels. I mean, mm -hmm. in the ocean, saltwater too. Uh, you know, I, I've heard a pretty interesting story from British Columbia told to me by a friend of mine, John Horrigan, who researched up there in the 90s and went to John Green's house and yep. got to meet all these old timers about a story. I think it was near Harrison Hot Springs where it's in some lake and a guy said that this Bigfoot swam under the dock and was literally on top of him at night while, or, or under him while he was on top of the dock at night. And it was one of the most terrifying encounters he's ever had. Mm -hmm. So I've heard these stories before. So I kind of thought, okay, Otterman, Kushtaka, Bigfoot, baby crying, what's the connection here? And it's just, it was so weird. And then it got even weirder because simultaneously to us being out at the cabin, Seth Breedlove and a bunch of the other small town monsters crew members were in also in the Kenai Peninsula, but other parts of Alaska, they were filming Seth's upcoming film on the trail of Bigfoot, The Last Frontier, which covers, uh, you know, the wide spectrum of Alaska Bigfoot reports. I think it's the most in-depth documentary ever done on the Sasquatch topic in Alaska, whereas our films were more boots on the ground. We're looking at this individual case, but Seth was interviewing dozens of eyewitnesses and researchers, including a lot of uh, Native Americans up there, First Nations people in Alaska. Uh, there were some, and there were quite a few stories of these people they spoke to that described they would hear stories of baby crying noises, and they, that was what the elders talked about. Uh, and that sort of thing. So to to know that Scott, who is not connected with that culture, happens to have this property out there, has a recording of this sound, and it's a story that's kind of ubiquitous with a lot of the people in that part of coastal Alaska. I mean, that was, to me, was really interesting. Uh, just thinking about the possibilities there. Uh, so yeah, I think the baby crying thing is absolutely one of the more interesting parts of that yeah, case, no of, which, of which there is a lot of interesting things, but yeah. that one for me really kind of stuck out. 
Yeah. Oh, there's so much in this whole documentary that I and I'm we're gonna add the links to the the notes in the show so people can go and see this because it is such a phenomenal few hours of of watching. I guaranteed people won't be able to take their eyes off this because it was so fascinating. And as I say, you guys documented it so incredibly well. Uh, Alex, thank you so much for taking the time today to do this um, and and chat about this. And of course, you guys have The Last Frontier that's that's coming up. Do you want to tell people where they can find that? Because that this will be out soon and it will be out before The Last Frontier is out. So <laughs> where can people find it and pre-order it and all of that? I, actually, I want to say The Last Frontier is probably coming out in the next couple of days as a recording. It's soon. Yeah, it's very soon. It's I, soon. I, I feel like I should know, but, <laughs> but um, it'll be available on kind of their, your typical VOD sites. So streaming, you know, places like Amazon, uh, iTunes, Apple Store, all that kind of stuff. Um, and that's typically, you know, where you can get those sort of traditional STM films. But what's cool about this one is we've done with a few other on the trail of Bigfoot slash Bigfoot Beyond the Trail combos where... Seth does his take and I'm doing mine and they sort of intermingle. We've done that with Olympic cool. Sasquatch and on the trail of Bigfoot, the discovery. But with this one, essentially you're going to hear a lot more about different Alaska Bigfoot stories, but then there's also a, fe- a section that features the cabin and some of the interviews with us and some of the things we experienced out there kind of after the fact. So you get to see that. And if you've seen the Alaskan coastal Sasquatch, it will make a lot of sense. And it kind of expands upon that with the other stories of the other eyewitnesses with the baby crying stuff. But yeah, definitely um, VOD sites. So Amazon, Apple, iTunes, that sort of thing uh, is a good place to get on the trail of Bigfoot. And in general, if you want to check out any of the STM stuff, just go to smalltownmonsters.com. Check out the YouTube channel, Small Town Monsters. Like I mentioned, we've got uh, dozens of documentaries at this point, not just Bigfoot Beyond the Trail. We've got other series and other documentaries as well on different topics, uh, including a lot of other Bigfoot stuff. But um, yeah, we've, we're always constantly pumping stuff out. And the, the only challenge with that is there's so many things I want to cover and so many topics I want to work on, but you have to kind of pick and choose at times. So I've always got a list way too long of things I'd like to tackle next. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, we're all going to be looking forward to whatever you guys put out because it's, yeah, I'm, I know I'm hooked and it, it, it's, yeah, yeah, it's phenomenal. So great. Alex, stuff. thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. Here's Morgan for this episode segment of Spiritual Healthcare. In this episode's edition of Spiritual Healthcare, the segment of the show where you get to be the creator and designer of your paranormal and spiritual experience, we're going to tell you about a process called the Surf Your Cravings process. One of the things people everywhere struggle with are cravings. When we think of that word, usually we think of a food, but the reality is it can come in many forms. Many people have a craving to look at their phone every few minutes, for example. So how do we use mindfulness to challenge them? Well, here's one way that might be useful to you. As you become aware of any needs or cravings, pause and let them be there. Notice how they feel. Try and stop yourself and notice this before you act on them. Habits, cravings, or addictions do damage by training our brains to have an automatic response to them. The urge appears and we respond immediately. Sometimes the response to satisfy the urge is so automatic, it happens without any real awareness or conscious thought. Instead, try to expand the space between your awareness of the anxiety behind your response and the response itself. Let the urge or craving be there and try staying with the discomfort that comes with that. Rather than moving to get rid of the discomfort, acknowledge the certainty that the discomfort will soon pass on its own. Often these types of cravings come with a story we tell ourselves that if we don't act, things will just get worse. What will happen if we don't answer the phone? What will happen if we don't check the messages or social media right away? And well, it might for a few moments, but the more we pause and challenge that anxiety, the more we begin to train our brain to respond differently to the stimulus. Often, shining a light 
on the automatic responses we have and then eventually replacing it with a new behavior will begin step-by-step to change your stress. You need nothing to be happy, but you need something to be sad. Remember, at the end of seeking, all is consciousness. Stay in peace, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Supernatural Circumstances, a co-production of Entity Seeker Paranormal Research and Teachings and Good Egg Studios. This podcast is part of the Curious Cast podcast network. Theme music by Corey Johnson of Catalyst Records in Edmonton, Alberta. You can find out more about Morgan Knudsen at EntitySeeker.ca and more about me and listen to my other show at DarkPatine.com. Feel free to email the show at SupernaturalCircumstances at gmail.com. Good night for now. <laughs>